We're in the book of John this morning, and we will be in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Now, John 3, 16, I don't know if you've ever heard that one before. Um, what I want to encourage you with this morning is that please try, as, as I did the best I could, to try to read and understand John 3.16 with new and fresh eyes and hearts. Um, try to your very best to say, I've never heard John 3.16 before. I want to understand what the scriptures are telling me in this passage. Now, you'll notice we're not only focusing on 3.16, but we're focusing on the context that leads us through 18. Next time we're in John, we'll pick up in verse 19, do 19 through 21. You'll notice that's one paragraph there together. So that's where we will be, not next week, but the week after. We'll be back here and finish that out. So I want to encourage you to look with me at John 3.16, John 3.16 through 18. Let's look at it, uh, read it together. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And we'll stop there this morning. So here's what I'd like to do. Uh, you know what I've got pulled up here? I don't even have my notes pulled up. I have something completely different pulled up. So uh, let me go ahead and pull that up here. There we go. Okay. I could do it without my notes, but uh, I don't think any of us want to want that. Um, here's what I want to look at. If, we, if you look back at verses 14 and 15, let's just remember what John has previously said to us, and then let's read what he has to say next. Because you'll notice that John 3.16 starts with the word for. So he is going into detail about something he has previously made a point about. Okay, so we can't, like this verse is so often used, completely removed from its context. So let's understand it in context. We know what 14 and 15 said. Let's just look back at it. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you'll notice that verse 15 is very familiar sounding, isn't it? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's what verse 16 basically says, right? So there is a context being understood here. I want to make another point. In some of your Bibles, I don't, I don't have one, um, but some of you have a red letter Bible. And for many of you, this portion will be in red letters. Now, the red letters came about in the year 1899, okay, by a certain guy that has a really funny name, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, but he came up with this idea of let's, let's take everything that Jesus said, let's put it in red letters, red, he used red because of the blood of Christ. And so he, he put the, the words of Christ of what he thought were words from Jesus in red. Now, we need to know and understand that if you have a red letter edition this morning, um, the red letters are not inspired, okay? The fact that they are a different color in your Bible doesn't really mean anything. The reason for that is because all of the words of Scripture are equally inspired. So if you see words in red, and it says, oh, but Jesus said that, and Paul said this, you really think that these words over here are more inspired or more significant, more true than these words over here. So um, do you have a red letter edition? Nothing necessarily bad with that. I'm just saying don't hold them to a higher regard than you were for other words. Now, that being said, I bring that up because some of your Bibles have verses 16 through 21 in red, and in other red letter editions, 16 through 21 is not in red. Okay, because people don't know whether Jesus was saying this or not. Here's the idea. John, uh, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus just previously, right? That ends, new paragraph begins. That was not in the original, okay? Paragraphs, verses, and chapter headings, you know, none of that was in the original. Um, that was all added after the fact. Verses and chapters weren't added until the mid-1500s. 
Um, so anyway, none of that is inspired, but the words themselves are, so we, we take it in context. So verse 15 ends, and then verse 16 starts. It says, for God's soul of the world. And there, there's an explanation of what was just said by Jesus to Nicodemus, right? For just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now, how many understand this to be, and this is where I would fall, is I believe that these are the words of John inserted to help the reader understand what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Words inserted by John, kind of as he was editing and writing his gospel, to help us, the reader, understand what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Okay? Now, whether you believe that or not, again, doesn't make it any more or less inspired, but it kind of helps for context's sake. Okay? So, option one, Jesus is still speaking to Nicodemus as we start verse 16. Option two, John is helping the reader understand what Jesus just said to Nicodemus. Okay? Either way, this is what we have. What was just said? The Son of Man must be lifted up, and all who look on him will have eternal life. Okay? Four, and this is an explanation either way. Um, but what I want to look at is really ask the question this morning, why did God send us his son? And we're going to answer that. And you may have a basic answer to that, but I want to answer it using these three verses this morning. Okay? I want to look at the motivation for God sending his son, the expression, what it looked like while he did it, the conclusion of it, and then the explanation of why his son needed to come in the first place. Okay, so we're going to look at answering that question in these four different ways as we go through the text. Okay, so I want to look at uh, chapter 3, verse 16, the first little section there before your comma, most likely, in your verse. It says, For God so loved the world. Let's stop right there. Here we see God's motivation for sending his son to us. What is the motivation? It's his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Okay? Why did God send him? For God was so just that he sent his son. Well, it's not God's justice that was his motivation. It was God's love for us. That was his motivation to send Jesus Christ for us. Now, I want to automatically start talking about something that seems contrary to this idea. 1 John 2.15, same John that wrote the Gospel of John. Here's what he says in his letter, okay? 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So wait, here's what you're telling me. I can't love the world because that would show that the love of the Father is not in me. But God can love the world. Now how does that make sense? It's because the term the world is being used in a different way. That's why I bring that up. Because John uses, as it, some people say John uses the world in 14 different ways. Some say he uses it in 10 different ways. Either way, John uses this little phrase, the world, in many different ways. It doesn't always mean the same thing. So, of course, our question is what? What does the world mean in this context? For God so loved the world. Who is the world? Who did God love that motivated him to send his son? I think it's a good question to ask, isn't it? For God so loved the world. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 of John. This is where we see the world used first. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, this is speaking of the entire entirety of creation. Verse 29 of chapter 1, The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, the trees sin. No, is Jesus coming to take away the sin of dogs? Now, dogs are bad. Sometimes dogs are very bad. Um, but is that the love of God for, this, for sinful dogs that he sent his son? So who is it referencing? Well, it's referencing sinful humanity, right? So the world in this context equals humanity in general. Humanity. God had a love for humanity, so he sent his son. Titus 3.4, the New American Standard Bible translates 
Titus 3, 4 this way. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. How did his love for mankind appear? In Jesus Christ. That's how it appeared to the world. God in the flesh. And God is love. So when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, there was God in the flesh. There's his love. It's in the person of Jesus made manifest for us. Now, notice one word here. For God loved the world. That's not what it says, is it? For God so loved, so loved the world that he sent his only son. He so loved the world. What does this mean? Some of your Bibles may even translate it. And God loved us in this way, that he sent his son. God so loved us that he did this, right? Or I, I liked looking back at, at verses 14 and 15 because this is what's being explained to us, right? Is back in verse, back in verse 14 and 15. We could think of it this way. For God so loved Israel that he gave them a bronze serpent that whoever looks on it would not perish but would have life. It's the same thing. For God so loved Israel that he sent them a bronze serpent. Great, we have something way better than that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever looks on him wouldn't have temporary physical life but would have everlasting life, eternal life. Pretty amazing. For God so loved Israel that he sent a bronze serpent. Now, it's important that we say this. God did not love them in such a way that he simply would overlook sin, right, or his justice. You remember what Israel prayed for? Or they asked Moses to pray for God, say, well, ask God to remove all the serpents. But he didn't. For God so loved them that he sent them a bronze serpent. But did, God did not so love them so as to remove the serpents from their midst. That's not how God loved them. God's love was expressed towards Israel so as to give them a bronze serpent. God's love for us was so expressed that he sent his son. He did not simply remove sin. That is not the way God loved humanity. But he loved us in such a way that he would send his son. Does God so love everyone the same? 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. There's that word world again, John's using. Wouldn't you know it? He's using it a different way again. So it's the exact same word in the Greek, but we use words that mean different things all the time, don't we? John does it a little bit more than others, but that's okay. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation, your Bible may say atoning sacrifice. Propitiation means both a covering for your sin and then absorbed wrath from God. It means both of those things. It means the offense against God was covered, and the penalty for that offense is gone. That's what propitiation means. It means both of those things. All right? Is God, is Jesus Christ, both of those things for all people who ever lived for the sins of the whole world? Has the blood of Jesus Christ covered the sins and absorbed the wrath of God for all people of all time? I certainly hope you're saying, no, that can't be, because what is that? It's called universalism. That means every person who ever lived will now be saved because of what Jesus did. But that is not the case. That is not how God so loved us. That whoever believes in him would not perish. But if you do not believe, you will perish. God did not so love us to save everyone of all time. That's not how he loved humanity. But how he loved us was that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. That's how God loved us. That's the way he chose to love us. 1 John 4, 10 through 12. In this is the love of God. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if, if that's how he chose to love us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God 
if we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here's one very simple application. If we understand the love of God that he has for us in Jesus Christ, it should transform us to want to love one another. If God so loved us, then we ought to, do you hear the tone there? That's what you should be doing. You should then love one another the way that he loved us. God's love for fallen mankind has caused him to send his son. God's love for all believers is such that they are adopted as his children. But not all people are adopted as his children. John 6, 37 through 40, listen to this. This is, again, this is just John explaining himself in other, in other parts. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. You ready? This is God's will for Jesus. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, if we stop right there, you might think it is something other than particular people. But verse 40 says, this is the will of my father. He's rewording it. That everyone who looks on the son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who looks on Jesus Christ in faith will not be lost, but will be raised up on the last day. This is how God so loved us, that he set things up in such a way that if you believe on the Son, you will have eternal life. There is no chance of you not having eternal life if you believe on the Son. No chance. It's not going to happen. Okay? If you look on the Son and believe, you will have eternal life. You can count on it. That's God's promise. Now, I asked you, does God love everyone the same way? I want to review these three terms here. God's benevolence, God's beneficence, and God's love of complacency. I know that last word is confusing. We've talked about it before. Benevolence, God's disposition of goodwill. That is, God has a disposition of goodwill towards his entire creation, a kind spirit towards, towards all creation. In what way? In the same way that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. It's what we would call common grace, is that there is goodness. All things are sustained by Christ. We know that. He is uh, working pr uh, providentially in his creation so as to give everyone life and breath. It is a grace of God and a goodness and a kindness that people who reject him for their entire life, that he allows them to live and breathe. That is a kindness that God gives all creation. Pretty amazing. Because creation doesn't deserve that. Okay, so God has a disposition, and then his beneficence is the display. So God's, God's disposition is that he would be loving. His display is in the things that we get and see. It is the actual breath that we get. Okay, so that's just, this is towards all people. His benevolence and his beneficence is towards, towards all people, his whole creation. But God's love is complacency. That is, his declaration of favor is different and is reserved only for believers. Does God love everyone the same? No. He does not. It can't be that he does. Look at Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Listen to what it says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Regardless of your take on predestination, you have to understand that God, having some that he loves through Jesus Christ, there are others that he does not. There is a display of God's love that we have because we are his children by faith in Christ. This is God's motivation in sending Jesus Christ. And again, and you've already put it in your notes, but God did not love the world in such a way as to overlook sin, pervert justice, and save all people of all time. 
That wasn't his plan. If this is how you think God ought to love, then you have an incorrect definition of God. Let's look at God's expression. I think this will become more clear as we, as we go. The expression of God's love, of course, is his son, God's son. So God is moved by love for the world, and so out of love, he sends his son. Let's look at it. This is uh, that second part there. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Stop right there. Now, if you, like me, first memorized the old King James Version, you memorized only begotten son, right? That's what you memorized. Um, the ESV says only son. The NASB, only begotten son. The NIV says the one and only son, right? A couple different phrases. The Greek word here, uh, I'll say the word because you'll hear a word in it. It's monogene, mono, mono. You hear that word? Monogene means one. And then it's really talking about one of a kind. That is, it's talking about the uniqueness of the son. Okay, so Jesus is the unique son of God, and that's really what the expression is, is trying to say, the one and only. There is only one son of God, and he was sent for us. There is a uniqueness to God, to Jesus Christ. Now, Luke uses this, this little phrase to mean only child, and it has nothing to do with anything other than just normal people who have an only child. That's how Luke uses it, but that's not how John uses it. He uses it in reference to Jesus Christ as the unique, only Son of God. Hebrews 11:17 gives us some insight because it talks about a unique Son, but the unique Son is not Christ. The unique Son is Isaac. Now, Isaac was unique, was he? But was he the only Son? He wasn't the only Son, but this term is used here. So, good, because that gives us insight. He wasn't the only son, but he was the unique son. In what way was Isaac unique? He was the child of promise. That's what made him unique. He was the unique son of Abraham, right? In the same way, Jesus Christ is the unique son of God. There is no one like him. And guess what? There never will be another one like him ever. He is the only one. And this is who God sent for us. He sent his only son, his one and only, his one-of-a-kind son, Listen to Romans 5, 7 through 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We read that earlier. Jimmy read it for us. Here's a question I have for you. What greater act of love could God have done than to send his son? The same son of who he said in Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'm giving him to you to beat and torture and spit on and murder. All for your sake. What greater act of love could God do than to give a very piece of himself, a beloved piece of himself, for sinful humanity? And when did God do this? When we were having a good day and we were being obedient children? Because isn't that the day when we want to do good stuff for our kids, by the way, when they're being good? But God looked at us in our rebellion. And in that rebellion is when he made the decision to send his only son for us. In our, in our rebellion is when God loved us. Unbelievable, unbelievable that that is what God did for us. Okay, so that's God's expression, is sending his one-of-a-kind beloved son for us. What motivated him to do that? His love for us. Okay, so what kind of conclusion can we draw from that? It is God's grace. And then it says in that last part of verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
What this would mean if you read it literally, like word for word from the Greek, it would say, in order that everyone believing in him should not perish but have eternal life. That everyone believing in him, that is, everyone who believes, the believing ones, will have eternal life. All those who are believing will have eternal life. Okay? It's not speaking of who believes. It's not speaking about who will and who will not believe. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about who might, who might not, who will, who won't. That is not the point. The point is belief in Jesus equals eternal life. That's, that's the point. It is the case for all who believe that they will have eternal life. I'm going to say something here. Don't put the slide up, Zach, this next one. There is a blank in your notes, this next one. It says blank is all that is necessary for salvation. Okay, I want you to really consider that for a second. I hope that you know the answer to this. Okay, so on the count of three, we're going to say this word together. Okay? It's a very simple word. It's a very important word. And we're all going to say it together. If you're wrong, just be bold and wrong. Okay? <laughs> Are you ready? Do you know the word? I hope you do. When I say three, by the way, this is always confusing. I'll say one, two, three, and then we'll say the word. Okay? Ready? One, two, three. Faith. Thank you. Good. Write that in. You already know that, but do we need to be reminded of that? Yes. It's not faith plus anything, but it is faith. This is how God has so chosen to love the world that you look on the Son in faith and you will have eternal life. That is how God chose to love us. Unbelievable. That is the system he designed. That's how he loves us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the grace of God. Do we deserve such a system? That all we need to do is just believe on the Son and we'll live forever with him in perfection? Do we deserve that system? Absolutely not. So what is needed? The grace of God is needed. In the same way, did the rebellious children of Israel deserve for God to create this bronze serpent so that whoever looks at it might not die? You know, a good, a good conclusion we can draw from that, by the way, is there are some, in the context there, there are some who chose not to go look at the bronze serpent. Did you get that from the context? Whoever looks at it will live, but if you don't, you'll die. There were some who thought, that can't be right. I was bitten by a poisonous snake, okay? I need to do something different than to go look at something. But isn't that how we think too? You don't understand the depth of my sin. There has to be something more I can do for salvation. I can't just look to Jesus. I need to do more. I need to, I need to, I need to look at Jesus and... And whatever you put after that and is completely wrong. It is only by faith that we are saved. And it is the grace of God that he has set up that system. But yet he gives more grace when he removes the sting or the venom and he gives eternal life. Eternal life. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Who is the, who's them? All those who look on Christ and believe in faith. That's the system God set up for us that if I look on faith, if I look on Christ in faith, that I am his forever and no one can ever touch me because now I'm in the Father's hand. Even when I mess up, yeah, even when I mess up. 
It's like being bitten by a venomous snake and saying, whoa, thank you for saving me from that. And then going and playing in the snake den again. Like, oh, I was bit again. But once you look believing, none of those bites will ever kill you. Even though it's foolish, that's not going to take that life from you. It's going to hurt still, and you're going to feel it, and it's going to mess your life up, but it can never take that life from you. It can never take your eternal life from you. Some might ask, what kind of grace is this that God can only save some people? What kind of grace is that? What kind of God is that? And I think it's a legitimate question that we need to consider. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why didn't he design a, different, design a different system? Why wasn't his system that all people would be saved regardless of a whether they know about Jesus or not. Isn't that a more loving system? Is that a more gracious system? Well, maybe to you and maybe to me and maybe to some people of this world. If God is love, but that's what he should do, okay? Love isn't wrathful. Love, love doesn't tell you what you should and shouldn't do, right? Love doesn't tell you that you're wrong. Love doesn't tell you that you're bad, or does it? It does. It's all about how we define love, isn't it? And that's why we need to make sure that we're defining love biblically. Is God unjust for not saving everyone? That's really the question. Is God a bad God for not saving everyone? Does he have the power? Does he have the ability then why doesn't he? If you've never wrestled with that question, I, I want to encourage you to wrestle with that question because it's one that we need to ask because the reality is not everyone will be saved. Why? Does God not have the power? Does he not have enough ability to do that? I want to encourage you just with Romans 9, 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul is asking the question because there are some who are not saved. So Paul says, so what should we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Good question. That is the natural question that we should ask because it seems unjust to us humans that God would not save everyone. So Paul asked the question and he's going to give us the answer. So is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. And here is his explanation of why it's not unjust. Verse 15. For he says, that is God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What's the answer? It's not up to you. It's none of your business. Because it's God's business to save. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It's God's decision to make. And I want to say this, and I, I wrote it out word for word. I'm going to read it, because this is what I intend to say. You ready? If your theology does not allow God to do whatever he pleases including saving whoever it is that he will save, then that theology is not a biblical theology of God. Because there is a God in the heavens who does whatever he pleases. Now, do we question that? Do we wonder why? Absolutely, sure. And we, we should. We should wonder why, right? Why them and not them? They're a good person. Why can't they get it? I want you to get it. Why don't they? God, do something. God, you let me down. You let me down because I thought you were powerful enough to save. But you didn't. 
These are real life things that we have to wrestle with. The ultimate end of that is this. It's that God is the one who is in charge. He declares the end of things from when? From the beginning. We need to have faith that God's mercy and compassion reaches exactly to the places that he intends it to reach. He knows what he's doing. And he is a good God. Now, to plainly answer the question, is God unjust for not saving everyone? Well, no. In fact, God would be perfectly just for saving none. God would be perfectly just for saving none. So who are we to say, God, you're unjust for not saving all? So what's the explanation? Why has all this happened? Why has God so chosen to love the world? Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Here's the context, right? This is further explanation of what he's saying. And I think it's very good for us to read this next. Because verse 17 also begins with four. So there is the statement, whoever looks has eternal life, right? And then for God so loved the world. And then for, so with further explanation of the explanation. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. If you underline in your Bible, the word already is the key word. They are condemned already. That is, Jesus did not come to pronounce two different groups of people. I want you, not you. I want you, not you. No, he came into a world who was already sick and dying and diseased and depraved. And he came to save some of them. The rest were already sick and dying and going their own. They were already condemned. He didn't come to condemn everybody. They were already condemned where they stood. Every one of us, and so were you until the day you came to faith in Christ. He came to a world that was already condemned. That is to say, Jesus did not come into a neutral world and then draw a dividing line. No, Jesus came into a dead, diseased, dying world, and he came to save some of them. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are Jews any better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it's written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So could it be that it's, it's those who are good who God has compassion on? Well, no, because nobody's good. No one seeks after God. No one means no one. No one is righteous. That's the condition that Jesus came into this world. No one sought after him. In fact, the creator of this universe came in and he was the light. And what did the people love? The darkness. They hated the light. In fact, they murdered him. They hated him. Except for a few. And he said, you are my sheep. That's why, that's why you hear me. That's why you get it. It's because you're my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice. And you are mine, and I'm going to hold you forever. Now, your body's going to die. It's, you know, that's, that's the way it is in this fallen world. But believe me, you looked on me, and you have eternal life. I will never let you go. Never. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in, the, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of mankind is by nature, by nature a child of wrath condemned already. Why? Because we were born into sin. 
we need someone to save us. So our last point here. Jesus came to bring salvation into a world that was without hope. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? We were without hope. So that's our kind of our explanation. Let's, let's go back to verses 14 and 15. Remember, because this is what John is helping us to understand. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, imagine we take that and we kind of apply that story to our lives. Who are we by nature? We are all by nature filled with venom, and we are dying. And there is no hope of us surviving. Do you remember what, when the serpents bit the people that many people died? They bit them and they died because they were deadly poisonous snakes. Fiery serpents is what they're called. We have been bitten with a poison that will not just kill our body, but will send us to an eternal death, separated from God. And that's who we are. By nature, that's who we are. Condemned as we stand. But there's a way out. If you would believe, God made a way. He sent his only son and he raised him up, not on a pole, but on a cross. And if you just look at Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. Because it doesn't promise you anything other than that, eternal life. Because you could look on Jesus Christ and die a minute later. You could look on Jesus Christ in faith and lose your spouse in the next minute. Have a disease, sickness, lose your job, your money, your car, whatever it might be. Prosperous life is not what we're promised in the gospel, at least in this life. We have a very prosperous life coming to us, though. Eternal life with the Father and with the Son, and we will see him as he is. John 5, 24, this is where I'm going to end today. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Now, that word judgment there is judgment in the negative connotation. Anyone who is judged to the negative means what? You are condemned. It's the same word used here in our, in our verse. You are not condemned if you look on Jesus, but if you don't look on Jesus, you are condemned. You are guilty, and you will die guilty. and you will not have eternal life. Okay, so this is how God chose to love the world. He so loved the world that he sent his only son. And the scenario there is anyone who looks at him now will have eternal life. And all those who look on him will have eternal life. Believe it. And once you look in genuine, truly, truly saving faith, we've talked about what real faith is, then you will have eternal life and no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. No one and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But for those who don't, they are condemned as they stand, as you did once. There is a motivation here, and I'll read for you out of, out of Romans chapter 10. It says, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that. Verse 14, this is Romans chapter 10. How will they call on him of who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? How are they to hear unless someone preaches? How are they to preach unless they were sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Because this sounds pretty unbelievable. 
Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning as I have presented to you in its most basic form the gospel this morning that we are sinners in need of a great Savior and if we don't look to the one and only unique Son of God for saving, we will not be saved. That's all there is to it. But don't you know that there are some in your life who don't even know what you're talking about? How are they to believe on him of who they've never heard? How are they to believe unless someone is sent? Well, I wish someone would be sent then. Who are the sent ones? We are the sent ones. Don't think about it. That is talking about someone as a job, as a preacher, okay? It's not what it's talking about. But we are all to be those who send the message of Christ. How does faith comes how? By hearing. Hearing what? The word of Christ. So we should be those people speaking the word of Christ to the world because they are dying. They are condemned as they stand. They're sick and diseased, as were we, and we have the scars to prove it. But that's not where we will spend our eternity. We've looked to the only one who can cure us. We've looked to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We need the world to know. We need to remind ourselves Our life has been purchased, therefore our life is no longer ours, but it is Christ's. So tell the world. Tell your neighbor. Tell your family. I'm going to end with a story. I've already gone five minutes over, but that's okay. I'm going to end with a story. I went recently to Michigan for a funeral of my uncle, who I had many years of interaction with. I used to live with them for a while, actually. During that time, I saw my family, 99% of who uh, do not know Christ. And I got there, and, and uh, my mom, if you know the story of that, uh, my mom was conducting the funeral. And uh, anyway, when they found out that I was coming, uh, she asked if I could do half of the service with her. And so I said, well, of course, you know, sure, I will. Um, I had an opportunity to stand in front of my immediate family and my extended family and share about Christ. And then afterwards, I just read some scripture. Afterwards, I was standing there with my aunt and, uh, her, uh, or his wife, and uh, standing there with her, and, and everybody else was kind of leaving, and they were about to close the casket for good. And she was saying her last goodbye, and she was standing there, and she asked me to pray with her. And so I did. And I was able to share the gospel in my prayer. And then on the way home, My dad, for some reason, decided he wanted to ride with me. I was able to share the gospel with him on the way home. As it stands, none of them really heard me. Does that stop me from sharing Christ with the world? We believe that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not Faith comes through your ability to share the gospel perfectly. It's not what it's about. But it's about us being able to tell the truth of who Christ is. And we ask that the Lord would have compassion on them and save them. He's not going to do it except through his word. Because how does faith come? Faith comes through hearing. And hearing how? Hearing what? hearing the word of Christ. I want to encourage you today. There's someone in your life who you've been praying for, who you shared the gospel with maybe 50 years ago, if you're old enough to do that. You shared the gospel with them 50 days ago. Please don't give up on them. 
Continue to pray for them. Believe that what God said in his word is true. That he will save. Who will he have compassion on and who will he have mercy on? Who will he save? None of business. That's God's business. What is your business to be a messenger of the word of Christ to the world? We leave the work of saving to God. We can't do the saving. But we can't be his messengers. Coming up soon on Wednesday nights, I was initially going to do a, a series on prayer. David Platt pretty well covered that for us. Um, so I have changed my direction. Uh, we are going to be spending some time um, talking about a, a theology of evangelism and missions. A theology of evangel evangelism and missions. Why? Because I truly believe that it is what we are convinced of is true will lead us to action. I want us to see that it is God's plan for him to use us as his messengers to this world to let them know that there is a savior. There is a savior. You are sick. And as up to this point, you've just been taking some medication to ease the symptoms. But you know you're dying. We want to speak the message of the truth, of the cure, of the gospel of Christ to the world. And I want us to see that from the scriptures. And then throughout the summer, we're going to have some opportunities to do that together. Okay, so that's coming. I didn't intend to transition into that. It just happened. Um, but anyway, that's coming for us in the future. I hope that you have taken this verse this morning, this verse that we are all so familiar with. I hope it's been challenging and comforting to you this morning because that's what it was to me, and I just wanted to share the impact it had with me this week as I came to understand this verse that is so common to us but often so overlooked as well.